what it means we were born in North. We've got working, well, I've got working class attitudes. I suppose it's more like working class, maybe. It's the jobs that people do up north, isn't it? We used to all be miners and uh, ship workers and all that's gone now. Resilience, friendliness, hardworking generally. Sheffield. My, my accent, my Sheffield yeah. accent. You are listening to Grim Up North, a podcast about the North, from the North. Welcome to Grim Up North, a podcast from the North, about the North. I'm Matt Carr. I'm Adrian Scott. I'm a writer and author, and Adrian is a poet and photographer. Together we're going to be looking at the history, politics and culture of the North of England. What is the North? Why is it always present in the national conversation? Is it really grim up north? Why did people say it is? How have writers, photographers, filmmakers and artists depicted the north? Is there a north-south divide? So what if there is? These are some of the questions we'll be asking. We'll be speaking to guests here in the studio, and we'll also be out on the road visiting places and speaking to people. Today we're speaking to Brian Groom, author of the indispensable new book, Northerners. But before we do that, let's talk a bit about who we are and what we're actually talking about. So, Adrian, you're the most northern northerner of the two of us, aren't you? <laughs> I am. Yeah, I'm from Sheffield. I was... Well, it's interesting. I didn't start in Sheffield, which my son constantly reminds me of. I was born in London, but we moved here when I was about one because my dad came to help build the John Lewis in Sheffield. So I've been here on and off ever since then. So you moved here when you won. So really, you're still an outsider, really. I am. (laughs) (laughs) I am. But but you also spent a lot of time living in the South, didn't you? I went and studied in the South when I was in my 20s. Lived in London, yeah. And were you when you were living in the south? Were you were you like were you conscious of being a northerner? What kind of differences did you notice? I was very conscious of it. So I'd been programmed by the north that the south is unfriendly and um, full of people who never speak to you. That wasn't my experience, interestingly enough. Although it was on things like tubes and buses, but in the area I lived in, in Bethnal Green, yeah, people talk to you because they know you. But I think there's much more sense of uh, being overwhelmed by the size of a city in the south. Whereas Sheffield, um, everyone will tell you, it's a a collection of villages. And you can't go to the centre of Sheffield without meeting somebody you know. So when you came back to the north, did it it feel like you were coming home then? Oh, yeah. Always. It always felt like that. When I got the train, I got off at Sheffield, I breathed a sigh of relief that I I was home again. Right, well, that's pretty different from my own experience because, I mean, I guess my first... I mean, my dad comes from Yorkshire, yes. but my mother comes from the south. Right. So um, when I lived... I lived in the West Indies as a kid, and I used to hear stuff about the north from my dad, but I think the first time I actually visually saw the north was in that film Billy Liar, oh, yeah. which I saw... It must have been around what, 1961 or 62. Right. And the thing that struck me about it, I saw it on the cruise ship coming back from the West Indies for a holiday because we worked over there. And... Um, what struck me about it was how dark and gloomy it looked. And also the fact that the main character, Billy Fisher, his main aim was to get out of the North. Yeah. So the North seemed like some place to escape from. And yet, those who have seen the film, I mean, he doesn't. No, in the last scene, no. doesn't have the courage to go down south where no. he's got this kind of fantasy life. And then when we moved back to England in the late 60s, um, I would often come up to the North to see family members. We had family members in Leeds. And, and in Harrogate, I used to come up and see test matches sometimes in the mm, summer as a kid. Mm. And I was very conscious that it was a different place to the mm. south. It looked different for a start. It does but, look different. And it does feel different for a whole variety of reasons, which I think this podcast is all about, is, is what makes it different. But, um, yeah, I was, I was always struck when I came back by the sort of more colloquial nature of the North, the way people talk to you, the way accents... I mean, I'm sure they do down south as well, but accents change dramatically within 10 miles of each other. 
I know I would know if someone was from Rotherham or Barnsley or Sheffield just by the way they spoke. Yeah, I guess my impression of the North at the time, I just thought of the North as Yorkshire. Yeah, the North was Yorkshire. I wasn't conscious of anything else particularly. Well, I think I was yeah. conscious of being from South Yorkshire because it seemed a bit like the arse end of Yorkshire, um, where all the industry was. Um, whereas there were posher bits like we always felt second best to Leeds. But also when when I was in London and a lot of the people I studied with were from the home counties and places like that, when you said you were from Sheffield, the immediate response was, oh, it's filthy up there, isn't it? There's still that perception of that, that I think can, probably came from Orwell, um, that there's a stench in Sheffield, it's nasty, it's grim and it's dark, and all these industrial towns. Totally. I mean, you know, I, when, when I was um, growing up, I mean... When I was a teenager, I went to a boarding school just outside Sheffield um, in a mining oh, area. Yeah. So the place was surrounded by giant slag heaps and collieries and so on. You know, yeah. so I was very conscious that this industry, industrial kind of paraphernalia existed that I'd never seen before in the yeah. south. And occasionally we would come into Sheffield, and the place looked very gloomy. Everything, <laughs> it was all everything was always dark when I came into Sheffield. There was like a kind of bit of a smell hovering over the city yeah. like of of industry and you know i live here now i mean i've been up here in sheffield or in derbyshire for like more than 20 years now and it's totally different to the way i imagined it yeah as a kid and as i as i was growing up that world was changing i remember my dad taking me it was like a a family outing to drive between sheffield and rotherham to see the art furnaces at night because it was like a fireworks display um and and that's gradually well in the seventies it all fell apart, um, and Sheffield has changed and the North has changed dramatically. It has, and we're going to be talking a lot about that. But I mean, you know, talking to you now makes me think. Um, I say I've lived in the North for more than twenty years, but in fact I lived in Derbyshire, and not everybody thinks Derbyshire no, is don't. the North. And this is well, the question. this is a big debate. This is the question: Where is the North? Where does it begin? And where does it end? Um, and that's a question that we've asked people on the streets and that we keep asking ourselves. So where do you think it is? Where well, do you think it begins? Okay, um, I'll put my colours to the mask. Go then. for it. I think it starts just after Nottingham. Um, I, th- I think the border of South Yorkshire for me is where the north starts. Um, but then my dad was from Ashington in Northumberland and I don't think he would have thought of Sheffield as really being very northern. I don't know. I guess the interesting thing is that nobody can say you're wrong and no one can say you're no. right because there's actually no um, agreement on this. I mean, like, if you go back historically, you can find all kinds of definitions of where the north begins and ends. Um, back um, in the so-called Dark Ages, for example, it might be the River Humber, because that's where the um, the Kingdom mm. of Northumbria began. Mm. So there were people north of the Humber and south of the Humber. There's also a kind of straight line, which you simply put a straight line across the middle of the country, yeah. which is what leaves out Sheffield. According oh, to the Venerable good. Bede in his ecclesiastical history, um, the River Humber formed the dividing line between Northumbrian Angles and Southern Angles, sometimes known as Southumbrians and later called Mercians. Go a little bit further, and you find in 1065 texts describe the northern men who rebelled against William the Conqueror. And some of them say these northerners came from Derby, York, Nottingham and Lincoln. Mm. Others say they came from Yorkshire and Northumberland. And another text says Yorkshire. So even then, they couldn't actually agree. And the other thing is that the hostile north, the rebellious north, when when you had situations like the Pilgrimage of Grace, when you had the kind of rebellions against the crown, there would be different boundaries where they would meet. Yeah. Um, sometimes it would be the Don River at Doncaster and other times as far south as Northampton. So historically, there's also the 13th century officialdom. They made the River Trent the divide, the administrative mm, dividing line between northern, it was called ultra or northern or citra, Trentum. Right. So that was a boundary. But I mean, more recently... Yeah. Well, Danny Dowling, professor of human geography, uh, he called the myth of the north and established a new boundary from the Severn estuary moving diagonally up the Humber 
Professor Dowling based his division on education, life expectancy, house prices, inheritance tax, and other socio-economic factors. So moving away from um, geography there, really, and, I mean, because yeah. the line that he established is actually a really jagged line. It that is, would include it? Cardiff. It would include Cardiff within the well, north. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't think Cardiff would want to be called. They wouldn't, because they've got their own kind of cultural <laughs> hinterland. On the other hand, they've got certain experiences in Wales, in South Wales in particular, of well, industrialisation that are similar to what you would find in the I, north. And I think there's something there about solidarity and about connection with with experiences that even if I wouldn't think Cardiff was from the north, was the north, there are things that connect us. Yeah, absolutely. So... In 2017, Liverpool University did a study and said that the UK's population centre moved from Upper Medway in Derbyshire to Snarestone, great northern word, mm-hmm. in Leicestershire. Even more great northern <clears throat> word. Yeah, because of more people moving southeast. Well, and that's that's certainly my perception that people have migrated down mm-hmm. from the north. Um, the survey based this change by identifying the most densely popula- populated area outside of London as Spinney Hills in Leicester. Okay, so they, in that case, it's population density, of population that defines where the north and south begins. But then, I don't, I, yeah, in okay. two, you don't agree with that. Well, it, it 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 might be one way of defining the north, but I don't think it's it's in many people's minds as how the north is defined for them. Probably not, but what is in many people's minds? That's the question. Because, yeah. I mean, like in 2019, the pointless presenter, Richard Osman, asked on a Twitter... A game I've never understood. Go on. Me neither, but never mind. <laughs> he, in 2019, he asked on Twitter where the North and South begins. Good he got 6,000 replies. Wow. Some people said Crewe was the dividing line. Others said mm-hmm. it was Stoke-on-Trent. Or was it somewhere between Matlock and Chesterfield? That's where I lived, of course. I lived in Matlock. Um... Anything north of Hitchin is a barren wasteland inhabited by tree-dwelling feral folk, said one respondent. Well, and, and we'll find out later on, but those sort of perceptions of the north go way back in history. They do. I mean, you're not, you, you don't have tree-dwellers in your family background, do you? Not, not that I know of. Good. Um, <laughs> pity, pity. It's, it's there a, might be nice some touch. feral folk, but whether they lived in trees is another question. The interesting thing about some of these responses is that sometimes it depended where you were, like where you said the North began and end. For yeah. example, there were lots of people from Stoke who explicitly said, we are not Northerners. No, and I, I can understand that. I think, I think the potteries, places like that, I don't know whether they see themselves as North. Um, and there's always somewhere beyond, isn't there? So they say Manchester. It's It's... You know, it's always north of where you are. Yeah. <laughs> and what about YouGov came up with something entirely different, didn't they? Yeah, they asked whether uh, people belong to the north and the south using different maps. Eight thousand people. Four out of ten people in the east of England belong to the south. In another survey, YouGov asked how they what they call their evening meal now i think this is a good way of sorting things out oh really so well if you call your dinner well if you call your <laughs> here we go already what on earth okay if the meal you have it in the evening or in the late afternoon if you call it dinner you were southern if you call it your tea you were northern now that is a fairly safe dividing line oh dear that keeps me out then because i mean i've been living up here for 20 odd years and i actually refer to it as supper usually so i'm, I'm neither of those things i'm <laughs> well, not southern even or northern that. Oh, dear. Supper. Uh, mind you i suppose we do have supper you have a teen and, and a biscuit or something um but also your dinner is what you have at lunchtime um in in my world <laughs> well dinner i always thought of dinner as a special thing like sunday dinner say you know oh, aye, sunday dinner but then a lot of people are safe Sunday lunch. Yeah, they will. They will. <laughs> but how about this though? In 2018, Mark um, Tedder Jones, professor at Newcastle University, appeared on Radio Four, and he? he said that given that London now had this expanding sphere of influence, okay. Leeds and York could no longer be defined as northern cities. They okay. were part of the South. <laughs> I can't describe my reaction to that. What is your reaction? We'd, to that? Well, we, we'd have a, one of those um, parental advisories. Um, on the podcast if I did but get lost I would say
are listening to Grim Up North, a podcast about the North, from the North. In 1970, the BBC sent a reporter from the South up to Bury to find out what the North was like and what people thought. Is it right that people in Bury eat nothing but fish and chips? Absolute rubbish. Well, how often do you eat them? I eat them about twice a week. And this is because, of course, we're busy. We're up early in the morning, every morning, seven days a week. Doing what? We do newspapers, we're news agents, have been for 25 years. But a lot of people in the south of England have the idea that folks in the north do exist on fish and chips. A lot of people in the north also don't like the ideas of people in the south. The snobs, etc. And of course, uh, I haven't been down south, but um, from what other customers have told me, uh, they wouldn't like to live down south. They've been, they wouldn't like to live there. Things are more expensive. And it's these type of people who are going out for meals that won't cook themselves. Would you leave the North for the South? Never. No. But it does raise an interesting point, isn't it, really, that we've been talking about physical boundaries, where the North begins, yeah. where it ends. Most of us assume that it ends at the Scottish border, Yeah. the Scottish-English border. But in a way, the geographical definitions are less important than the kind of um, assumptions and stereotypes that Northerners have about themselves, that Northerners have about the South, and that Southerners have about the North. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, take this for example here. I mean, Leeds University professor Brian Jewell told the Yorkshire Post in 1992, he said that coming North is almost like going abroad for doctors trained in London. And a member of the mass observation team that went to Manchester in the 1930s said, I travelled north on the Manchester night train with all the excitement of a true explorer en route for North Borneo. (laughs) So, I mean, I I never felt like that, you know, when I came up from the south as a kid. But I do remember seeing those signs that said on the M1 and the A1, the north. And And that was a different place, you know. That's what it seemed like. and, And I think one of the difficulties of, like, the man alive and... And some of those other things from that era, like Coronation Street, even it portrayed Northern people like stereotypes, flat caps and whippets and all that. And what you get from that lovely, a pity we can't show it, is she's a real person, and she's got real pride and a real sense of dignity. That I think that's part of being Northern. So I remember hitching. Uh, when I was a student, back to Sheffield. And you'd stand at the bottom of the M1 and there were those those signs that you talk about, the great big to the north, which has a sort of Game of Thrones vibe to it. Totally. That, that sort of, you know, winter is coming and the fact that they cast Sean Bean. Apparently, when they said to him, can you do... Uh, they wanted him to do it with received pronunciation. That oh, moment. really? And he said... And they said, can you do received pronunciation? He went, no. So he had to teach all the other Starks how to speak like Northerners and he brought them to Sheffield. That is funny. <clears throat> so I think, yeah, that that idea of coming north, that I, I don't know about North Borneo, but but it was another country, well, I think. It certainly what... was perceived such by people in the South. It certainly was. Take George Orwell, for example, Let's... the road to Wigan Pier. When you go into the industrial north, he said you are entering a strange country. This is partly because of certain real differences that do exist, but still more because of the north-south antithesis, which has been rubbed into us for such a long time past. Rubbed into us. Right, oh well. I think the road to Wigan Pier is one of the most powerful descriptions of the north, and it's, it's shaped people's minds. This is what he says about Sheffield. But even Wigan is beautiful compared with Sheffield. Sheffield, I suppose, could justly be called the ugliest town in the old world. Its inhabitants, who want it to be preeminent in everything, very likely do make that claim for it. <laughs> a bit harsh on Sheffield. Not well, entirely I don't... factoring about Wigan. No, no. But the Sheffield he is describing in the time when he came here, I do understand what he was getting at. I mean, he said, you can stand on a street corner and you could see 30 chimneys wherever you were, but actually there were a lot more, you just couldn't see them because of the smoke. Well, so when we, it's funny because 
It's interesting, when we think of the North as another country, it's often because of industrialisation. It's been rubbed into us, And also, at the time, when, when it first became evident that the Industrial Revolution was unfolding, even though it wasn't exclusively concentrated in the North, People thought it was, yeah, and they often, and so this idea of coming to a, a new country, a different country, yeah. was related to that. Take this for example. I mean, French aristocrat, traveller, political scientist Alexis de Tocqueville, in his eighteen thirty-five journeys to England, mm. this is what he said about Manchester. Mm. Not much better than Sheffield, by the way. He said, <laughs> "From this foul drain, the greatest stream of human industry flows oh out to fertilise the whole world. From this filthy sewer, <laughs> pure gold flows." Here humanity attains its most complete development and its most brutish. Here civilization works its miracles and civilized man is turned back into a savage. Oh my God. It's, it's <laughs> funny was that he? he was um, a very well-known 19th century political scientist right. who wrote all kinds of stuff. Right. Very, very highly regarded. And his quote was not unusual. No. I mean, this was standard stuff yeah, coming yeah. from... Yeah from travellers from the south or from outside the country. And that's another thing, you know, is this idea of the north, we think of it as something like rooted in, in industrialisation, mm. the, the, the way the north looked, slag heaps, yeah. mines, factories. Yeah. Um, but in fact, the idea of the north as a different place precedes industrialisation. Oh, want yeah. To, if you want to get really sort of cultural, intellectual about it, you'd have to look <laughs> at the whole idea of north. As right. a thing in itself, right. which is a, it's an idea very rooted in Western culture that was in, initially applied to describe peoples who lived a long way from the Roman Empire. Right. Um, right. So you would get the idea. The ideas of the North was a place. It was Denmark. It was Sweden, yeah. north of Sweden. It was um, a place where you found Vikings. Yes. And the point about it is, it was barbaric, austere, mm. and a little bit savage partly because of the weather, partly because of the way the weather was supposed to have shaped the people who lived there. You had Roman historians like Tacitus, who described northerners in Germany as being a kind of virtuous people compared with the decadent Romans and yes. so on. And some of this was applied to Britain. Mm. Because, I mean, you had um, Britannia superior, Britannia inferior. I, the inferior I can guess part, which you we can were. guess. Because it was furthest away <clears throat> from the seat of Roman power, yeah, at least yeah. for much of the time. And, so and that's a big theme, isn't it, for the North? Being away from the seat of power. Absolutely, unrepresented. Mm. Unrepresented yeah. and also imagined in a very specific way. You know, like, for example, um, Oleus Magnus, Swedish bishop, who wrote oh, an amazing yeah. book called A Description of the Northern Peoples in oh. 1555. This is how he described the Northerners of his day. He wasn't referring specifically to Northerners in this country, but some okay. of it does apply. Okay. He said that Northerners were valiant and trusty men, yes. though they are exceedingly scarce. Um, <laughs> such courageous individuals also show great daring in tackling dangers. Mm. They are content to seek the hard ground or flintstones for their repose rather than a soft bed, which I is love. fit for the milksop <laughs> who carries no weapons. <laughs> so bearing in mind that the North for <clears throat> centuries was a place where you would have bishops and priests sleeping with swords under their beds because yeah. they're worried about the kind of Caledonian uh, hordes marauding them and of the border. I sleep on a bed of flint quite often. Do you? Yes, Do you? You look sword, tired, under, <laughs> sword look under my bed. So, I mean, um, this is an idea that we do have about the North, isn't it, though? I mean, yeah, these are... Is, to be fair. We, how, what, the, well, the, the word savage has come up at least twice. Not flattering word, is it, really? Not really. Just that idea of barbarism... Um, that I do think that haunts people's views of the North, that somehow it's barbaric and trouble at mill and it's grim up North, like we've used for the title of the podcast, because it, it is in that perception of people. Well, let's hear what some people have had to say, shall we, about what they think, um, what qualities define Northern, okay. shall we? Yeah. Do you feel proud to be from the North? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What are you proud of? Sheffield. My, my accent, my Sheffield yeah. accent. Yeah. 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 Definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah. North talk to people, south don't. <laughs> right, right. Flat caps and whippets. Yeah. <laughs> Clubs, yeah. So do you consider yourselves northerners? Yes, through and through. Why do you, what, does that, what does that mean to you, to be a northerner? Proud. So do you think there's a, do you think there's like a significant difference between the north and south? We're friendlier. Straight away, see what can I say? Well, she's right, isn't she? Really, 
I mean, everybody's different, we're all individuals, but I think there is something there, isn't it? If, if a 20, fit five year old person can say that. <laughs> yeah. Is it grim up north? <clears throat> no. Glad you can be. <laughs> the people are. I suppose it's more like working class, maybe. It's the jobs that people do up north, isn't it? We used to all be miners and uh, ship workers and all that's gone now, so we're not. We're not as well. We shouldn't have that uh, stigma now, should we? So uh, we've got tons of. Um, come on, Peak District, wildlife, fresh air, lovely water, you know, countryside areas. So yeah, no, it's not grim. <laughs> Where does the north begin? Uh, <laughs> north of the Watford Gap. That's what I was told anyway. <laughs> People that are from further up that are like, oh, you live in the Midlands then, and I'm like, no, I live in the north. <laughs> so, do you consider yourselves northerners? Very uh, much so. Yes, very much yeah. so, yes. <laughs> what does that mean to you? Well, it means we were born in north. We've got working, well, I've got working class attitudes. Do you think some good things come out of it. I do, yes. Yeah, probably, yes. On a financial basis. I do think the South gets more finance from government because we read paper, various papers, not just a labour control paper. You read the paper and it's telling you how much they get spent on transport, particularly to what we get per mm. head. And it's same in everything down there. And a lot of businesses go down there. Obviously, they're only 20 miles. When they, they go down to Essex, they're only 20 miles to Europe, aren't they? Whereas up here we're a bit further away and people tend to, they want it where the markets are. Industrial revolution started here, so everything stemmed from that, haven't you, when you think about it. Um, and the way we've recovered from coal industry, steel industry, which I worked in, uh, it's all decimated and all went to pot. Uh, so we've got to be proud that we're keeping going. That's what we've got to be proud of, yes. Where does the North start? I would say Nottingham. There are a lot of people who set Watford Gap, weren't there, something like that. But I don't travel up and down to M1. So I always think Nottingham. When you've got these big mountains of coal waste, yes. But now we can go to, you go to Yorkshire Sculpture Park, you look across from Yorkshire Sculpture Park, across to Woolley, where there was a coal mine. Great big massive, and it's same with Silverwood Pit, and it's all grassed over now. It's turned into a country park now. Broadsworth mines that were converted as well. So I think it is it has improved a lot, yes. Just one reminder, Rotherham's got promoted. That's another plus point for North. <laughs> yeah, so do you consider yourself a northerner? Definitely. Yeah. Yes, please. What 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 characterises a northerner? Uh, resilience, yeah. friendliness, hardworking generally. I've worked all over the country and I've worked down south and you can clearly see where all the money is. All investments down south. So these these are some of the things that people we've interviewed in the streets have said. Yeah. But um, what about what Monty Python have said? Some people might remember this. We used to live in this tiny old house with great big holes in the roof. <laughs> house? We were looking to live in a house. We used to live in one room, all 26 of us, no furniture, half the floor was missing, and we were all huddled together in one corner for fear of falling. Yeah, you were lucky to have a room. We used to have to live in corridor. Oh, we used to dream of living in a corridor. <laughs> Would have been a palace to us. We used to live in an old water tank and a rubbish chip. <laughs> we got woke up every morning by having a load of rotting fish dumped all over us. House. <laughs> well, when I say house, it was only a hole in the ground covered by a sheet of tarpaulin. But it was a house to us. We were evicted from our hole in the ground. <laughs> We had to go and live in a lake. You were lucky to have a lake. So what has all this got to do with Rotherham or County Durham, say? Well, I mean, Monty Python were sending up um, a certain, some attitudes that are associated with being a northerner, yeah. being a Yorkshireman in particular, but some of them kind of like... Especially Yorkshire men. Absolutely, absolutely yeah. that. But, you know, be, it's funny, 
But what they they are talking about stereotypes that remain surprisingly constant. I mean, yeah. maybe we don't think about of Northerners as wandering around the place covered in woad or <laughs> clothed in animal skins. But there is a sense <laughs> that often. Northerners are hardy, yeah. um, more austere, more resilient, more used to hardship. Yeah. There's the idea of it being grim up north. Yeah. There's the idea of the north as a place of crisis. Yeah. An underrepresented region. Absolutely. Yeah, kind of isolated to some extent from the main centres of power, even when it was economically powerful. Yeah, yeah. So then you've got things like um, the experience, the early experience of industrialization. Yes. And you have deindustrialization and all the yeah. deprivation associated with that. Yeah. So even plenty. when you have films like, say, Brassed Off or The Full Monty, which um, there's this feeling of um, victim, of victimization underneath the, under, even when they're funny. <clears throat> well, I, yeah, that's interesting. Because those two films definitely are not portraying victims, although the North seems to be a victim of something. Um, the Full Monty, it, it, there's a lot of pride in it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of a sense of, you know, even though you've got to take your clothes off, there's a sense of dignity in those people. Yeah, And it, it's funny, and that fantastic moment when they're standing on a, a car submerged in the canal and the bloke walks past and goes all right and they say ah not so bad that captures that sort of northern stoicism and the normality of what they're seeing yeah and and you've got an industrial wasteland around them brassed off again you know the miners strike there's that brilliant pete Postlethwaite speech at the end mm -hmm. uh and, and it, you know even when i've been to america and I say I'm from Sheffield. Someone will go, ah, the full Marty. And and part of me feels proud of it, and part of me feels devastated that that this in a place that built the country is reduced to the full Monty, is reduced to these blokes that can't get work. And there's a sort of there's a pathos about that film and about Brastoff. Isn't that what happens again and again that you find the North kind of in the way it's kind of imagined? outside the north is reduced to you use that word reduced yeah, yeah. To. doesn't that yeah. happen a lot i think it does it, it reduced to stereotypes reduced to to coronation street and it's it, yeah and i suppose as a northerner i feel frustrated by that because it's such a complex area and people are complex who live here and creative and have all sorts of things going on um that that come out in the work that's produced um but yeah, often feels reductionist when it comes to the popular mind. Absolutely. And this touches on a theme which you can't not talk about when you're talking about the North, which is the North-South divide. And we'll talk, oh. let's have a chat about that. This idea of the North-South divide, people might not agree on what it is, but it's there all the time. Certainly in people in the North, that sense of, of division, of resentment, of, of underrepresentation, it's you can hear it in those quotes. Absolutely, and that's that's kind of rooted in the kind of dynamics of particular dynamics of political and economic power yeah. in the UK, as opposed, yeah. for example, to other countries like say Spain and Italy, where you have a kind of yes. agricultural south in the southern Italy and the industrialized north, and the same in Spain. Whereas here is the other way around, and the source of power is in the north instead of the. And, it is yeah. exactly the source yeah. of political power and economic might really yes whereas here you've got this peculiar situation you've got the dominance of london yeah as a financial center as a mercantile center a political center yeah. and you have the more recent because it is relatively recent in history the north emerging as the center of industrialization though not the only place but nevertheless it's always associated with yeah. industrialization yeah. so out of that you know orwell once again he's Good always old george every friend, time friend of grim up north every time but um you know not entirely grim up north because he did admire things about northerners so yeah. he did say the northerner has grit, he's Said grim, yeah, doer, plucky, warm-hearted and democratic, yeah. whereas the southerner is snobbish and effeminate. <laughs> so this is the north. The north defines itself. <laughs> it couldn't be more insulting in some ways. Not really. He insulted almost everyone, didn't he? And the interesting thing is also <clears throat> that um, he also touches on something. He says, he talks about how the north defines itself in opposition to the south. Yes. It's almost like you couldn't define the north without that view of the south. 
So he argues that... I, I do think there's truth in that. There's bits of truth in everything, isn't there, mm, as yeah. he says. So he says, um, he talks about how Northerners regard industrial work in the North as the only real work. Yeah. And he says, um, therefore... Get a proper job. Exactly that. Mm. The North is inhabited by real people, whereas yeah. the South merely by rentiers, uh, landlords, yeah. and their parasites. <laughs> so once again... Orwell pretty much doesn't take any prisoners or make any friends in these comparisons. <laughs> he doesn't. But I they mean, are I th lingering. I, I think, you know, reading The Road to Wigan Pier, one of the things that's very powerful is that whatever his political persuasions, his, his ability to observe, there's a description of miners working at, in a three-foot seam. And he, and he talks about the fact that they're hunched down they can't use their legs for leverage so all the leverage comes from their torso and that description is is visceral um and and uh, that's so powerful and, uh, and i think captures something about the physicality of the work that was in the north and that that people still feel that that this was proper work we did proper jobs absolutely but you know in terms of the kind of stereotyping north and south yeah. there were there were mines in kent yeah, I know that. Um, yeah, there are yeah. Cornish tin miners. Yes. And yet, though, yet those yes. jobs were and never well, as associated with those regions as miners are, are with Wales, South Wales, yeah, and true. also with the North. True, true. Um, you know, Disraeli once wrote, um, former Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli wrote a book describing the two nations right. between whom there is no intercourse and no sympathy who are as ignorant of each oh, other's habits, God. thoughts and feelings as if they were dwellers in different zones or inhabitants of different planets. Yeah. So he wasn't actually referring specifically to North and South. He was referring to the difference between rich and poor. But he could have been talking about the Well, North exactly. That, isn't that the thing, that, uh, that the North has come to be associated and with this, poverty? I, I, you, when you hear people talk about one-nation conservatism, I always think, well, that, that probably means one nation defined by the South. Um, whereas I think it's more honest to to talk in some of that language that he uses about two worlds. He does, but it's interesting how that breakdown of the two worlds is imagined. Commonly, when people hear about this Disraeli two nations thing, they often think in terms of Mrs. Gaskell, you know, yes. North and South. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so they often think that that's what he's talking about, but he isn't talking about that. <laughs> There's a great <clears throat> quote from Simon Armitage in a poem called Poundland, and he says, um, and, and the manager appeared with a face like Doncaster. Um, that is, that's something that only a northerner would know that. Exactly. In a way. I don't Everybody think knows what that face would look like. Anyone if you live in the there. north knows what it's yeah, like. Yeah, exactly. I don't think they know much further south. And we've called this episode True North, mm -hmm. and I think there's something emotional uh about all of this stuff it's not it doesn't just work on an intellectual level the idea of north is a very emotional um powerful driver of of how people see themselves how people are seen by other parts of the of the country um it, it so true north is a good way of describing it it's a compass point it is, but that compass point, in a way, has been moved back and forth yeah. by various momentous historical Absolutely. moments. And that's why we decided to um, speak to a historian about it. Yeah. Let's see what um, Brian Groom has to say to Let's us. Let's see. So, Brian, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, it was a pleasure. We both read your book and we absolutely loved it. We think, you know, like for anybody interested in the history of the North and the culture of the North, it, we can't recommend it enough. I mean... It takes starts in the Ice Age. It takes in almost everything um, between then and Brexit. It had, touches on things we think we know about the North and stuff that many of us will never have thought of. It's engaging, intriguing, and well-researched. Um, are you a Northerner, Brian? Uh, I am indeed, yes. I'm from Stratford, just south of Manchester. <laughs> and what made you want to write this book? Um, well, I've been, I've been thinking about it for about 10 years. Most of... Um, I'm a journalist and most of my career has been in and around British and regional affairs in one form or another. Um, and journalism is quite like history in real time, uh, uh, really. And yeah. um, as, a, as a kid, I was a, uh, I was, uh, uh, a fanatically interested in history. Um, uh, I went off a little bit in my teenage years, but I've come back to it as I've got older. And the kind of two things in my mind 
that came together in this subject just seemed to be a, an obvious one to go for. And I was I was astonished to discover when I started researching it that um, uh, it only ever been done. Uh, there's only ever been one general history of the North previously published, and that was in 1990. So it seemed like um, a gap and an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So. Why is the North so often spoken about in the national conversation as a problem, as something it's often seems to be discussed as something that's part of England, an intrinsic part of England, and yet isn't quite part of um, the conventional understanding of England and Englishness? Why is that? Why does the North often so often feature like that? Um, I do. Why it goes? I, it has a probably a stronger collective identity than many big regions of England, though there are lots of smaller identities within the North. Mm. Distance from London is an important point, uh, as I point out in in the book. It has a quite illustrious past that people often don't think of before the Industrial Revolution. That um, when the Kingdom of Northumbria was a very powerful, powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdom. <laughs> And the really the Industrial Revolution set the 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 kind of tone for the North South dialogue. It created the North in the image that we see it now, uh, almost in kind of juxtaposition to the South. Or at least Northerners tend to talk about the North when they're thinking or talking about the South. So I think that's where where its its roots lie, and it's it's changed over the past couple of centuries. The North was hugely successful for 100, 150 years. It was driving Britain's growth in that period. But since the First World War, the North has had a tougher time. Uh, it's a different kind of relationship. And um, that's that's really the, the where we are with the dialogue now. It's a, it's can it be can it be a regional of equals, as it were, or is it always going to play sittle, second fiddle to London and the Southeast? Yeah. I, I, I'm from Sheffield, um, lived here most of my life. Um, and this idea of the north-south divide that everyone throws around as a as a, a sort of throwaway comment, um, yeah, I think your book goes a long way to explaining a bit more why that is. Um, how would you characterise the north-south divide now? Um, well, the north is still, in economic terms, certainly the junior partner. Um, uh, which is, uh, and it's become electorally very sensitive, which is why it's at the um, the the centre of the the national dialogue now after the EU referendum and then after yes. the twenty nineteen general election. Yeah. So that's 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 very important. But the we're at a situation now where um, the North definitely needs more regeneration, or parts of it do. Um, but we've had repeated efforts from Stanley Baldwin in 1928 onwards, lots of efforts by governments of different parties over the years. And some of them have worked partially for a period. But as you can see from the, the data, it's 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 it, it's not it's not endured for a long time. Um, there is a gap now, however you measure it, whether it's productivity, health, employment, things like that, um, living standards, there is a gap to be to be bridged. And there's, uh, I think, a serious dialogue to be had now on, on, on how we best achieve that. George Orwell wrote that it was the industrialization of the North that gave the North-South divide its peculiar slant. Those were his words. But how true is that, in your opinion? Because one of the intriguing things I took from your book was the way you reveal how that there was already a certain kind of north-south divide long before industrialization that manifested itself in various ways. Yes, in, in lots of ways. It, it, well, I don't think it was created by the north-south divide. I think I think what Orwell had in mind was it, it shaping it in the, the characteristics that we commonly think of it as, the, you know, the cloth caps, the yeah. blunt-spoken bosses and workers, the coal mines, the industry, all those things that we typically think of as the Northers weren't around to the same extent. But the idea, certainly on Southerners' minds, that the, uh, that the North was a, fairly, was a wild place, yeah. <laughs> a wild and hard-to-tame place, um, goes back centuries, goes back probably right as lo- for as long as there has been people living in, in both places. Um, and it, it, what the Industrial Revolution did was give it a new industrial edge to that, um, that, yeah. that kind of view. So do you think that kind of long history of 
playing that role, the kind of guards of the frontier, contributed to that sense of the North as a kind of underrepresented region with certain grievances that kind of continue to kind of play out over various generations. Yes, I mean, in some ways, that was the, the, the medieval period was an influential period for the North, because those barons were not only just uh, guarding the Scottish border, but um, uh, a lot of the Northern Lords were supplying the manpower for walls, both against Scotland and France. Um, it, it was a kind of military supply geared economy. And all the people working for, so that was the period in which families like the Percys of Northumberland um, um, became very rich and very powerful. Um, and they were getting money from ransom, from fees, from, um, uh, from, from weapons, from honours, from positions and things like that. And quite high proportion of uh, the English crown's military, crown's um, annual budget was being spent in the north of England and finding its way to different parts of the economy. Um, but um, eventually the North weakened economically and by the time the Tudors came along, it was, a much, it was becoming a much more centralised country. The Tudors were particularly centralist. Mm. They'd seen the wealth being created in the southeast, um, and they kind of that they concentrated power there accordingly. That raises the question then of why 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 did is there a danger of, of kind of having the central paradigm of what England is based on a north-south divide? Is there a danger of oversimplifying our understanding of the country? I mean, like why isn't there um a divide between London and the rest of the country, or why isn't it imagined as um, the South or London versus the West Country? And what about Cornwall and so on? And yet we continually think about it in terms of this one thing: the North-South divide is the dominant um, problem, the dominant regional problem in British politics. I, I think those politics. I think those divides do exist. I don't downplay the um, the issues of the centre against the periphery or the centre against the Midlands in various places. Uh, in the north, it's, it's particularly been vivid, been particularly vivid because of its strong image and history. Mm. Um, but I, it's among other things, these regions are quite hard to define now. Uh, in the book, I described that I define the north very, very loosely um, yeah. and inclusively as a place where. And people have tried to draw it in all kinds of places over the centuries. So I just say, well, the um, the north is. Um, the place where the people who live there think they're in the north, and a northerner is somebody who thinks they're a northerner. It's the closest I can come to defining it because it depends, <laughs> among other things, if you're div are you dividing England into two or three or more? Um, uh, I sometimes think, you know, the uh, I mean, the Midlands must have a sense of grievance about often being left out of this dialogue because it doesn't form, it's uh, kind of eliminated as part of the north south divide dialogue. It is an oversimplification, on the other hand. If you look at the stark figures, um, it's it, it's definitely there. The um, um, the North accounted for thirty percent of the um, of Britain's uh, economy just after the First World War. Now it's just below twenty percent. So it's been a pretty big shift. Mm -hmm. um, I love the way you finish the book. As for closing the cultural gap, does anyone really want to? Um, Britain has enough clone towns, surely. One of my, I write poetry as well about the North, and one of my abiding interests is, okay, what's going to happen now? Do you think that the Northern culture, which was so defined by industrialization and things like that, do you think it will become more homogenous with the South, or do you think it will persist? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I don't have a definitive answer to that. The, I mean, it is probably true that within our lifetimes, the some of the cultural differences have been reduced by um, globalisation and now the internet and social media and more common experiences um, within the country and beyond. Mm. Uh, it feels less enclosed than it used to be. This travel is, or has yeah. been recently freer. Um, and you have seen some evening out of, for instance, the, 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 the language divide as well. That's, you, you still get um, differences in pronunciation, less so in written English, certainly in pronunciation. Mm. 
um, and they've reduced a bit. Will will all these things disappear? Um, I'm not so sure about that. They're, they're, they're centuries old, in fact, thousands of years old. It seems unlikely that the whole thing's going to suddenly become one amorphous mass with people just record doing the same things wherever they are. Yeah. Like I said, it'll change a bit, and it's changing in unforeseen ways already. Mm. Um, but my guess is that, that that these differences will will survive to an extent. I love the fact, because I've listened to a lot of the book on the audio book, and the guy that reads it, I mean, it's like Sean Bean. Um, yeah. and, and that gives it a, a, a certain edge um, that I would hate to lose from 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 northern do you think there is a northern culture or do you think it's actually a lot of disparate towns and cities that form some kind of unity well i th- I, th- I think there is a, a northern culture and a, i mean i don't try to define northern culture no, and identity in the book um, um not because i don't think it's possible i do try to write about other people's attempts to do that but I think it, it is, it's multi-layered and more subtle than people often think. And this, 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 the North has, has often suffered, I think, from, um, from stereotypes. Some of them created and perpetuated by Northerners themselves. So I'm a bit, a bit wary of sweeping generalizations about the North. But, yeah. but I think there are different layers. It, it seems to me that people's primary sense of identity often is with their city or town or county or sub-region. And that's particularly strong in um, the Northeast, where a lot of people would regard Lancashire and Yorkshire as being in the Midlands. Um, It's strong in Liverpool with its big um, global and um, Irish influence, uh, which has a sense of separateness. And some people would say they're um, Scouse, not English. They're not part of the North. And then, the, and then there's Yorkshire, where people have historically regarded it as God's own county. <laughs> so those those places, I would say, are where it's especially strong. But I still think there is a enough of a collective um, northern identity, particularly true when people are talking about the south. That's when it usually comes up, and when they're in thinking about when, towards the south. Yeah. yeah. In, in your thinking, book, I, I sense the kind of celebration of northern difference in your book. Um, I mean, you talk in. Uh, I mean, we would in our, in the podcast so far. We've been talking about how these different ideas of the, about the North have accumulated over the centuries, and it's obvious that some of them are just brought to the conversation by certain cultural ways that people imagine North and South in general. But it's also obvious that it's rooted in historical things, things that have actually happened. Um, you talk, for example, a lot about the rebelliousness and independence of the North and various um, episodes in which the North has rebelled against central government including right up to the miners' strike, um, and Brexit as well. You also include, you compare Brexit to the pilgrimage of grace in some ways. You make that continuity. Could you talk about some of these examples of um, when this rebelliousness has shown itself? Yes, and it's shown itself in in different ways. The... in, in the modern age, quite a lot of Northerners like to think of it as a radical place, particularly true around Manchester. Um, it's a very strong radical history from the early early Industrial Revolution. And it's true, during the, the first half of the 19th century in particular, there was an absolute ferment of new ideas, new industrial processes, new ways of living, um, people being thrown together in cities of unprecedented size. It was a, a period of great change. And there were a lot of radical movements, not always coherent ones, but because um, you had some employer-led ones like um, the campaign for free trade, uh, or you had more yeah. working working class ones like from Luddism and uh, and and, um, uh, and and things like that. Uh, but at other times in history, uh, particularly when the North has been a more agricultural society, it's been pretty conservative. Mm. Uh, so the the rebellions you see in history, particularly the Tudor ones, have been. Um, um, more on the conservative side in the in the Tudor times, the two big revolts were the um, the Pilgrimage of Grace, which is the biggest biggest popular revolt in English history. About thirty thousand people across most of the North, um, and and it was it was um, partly it was uh, 
it was sparked off really by the Reformation and, and the fear that there were some economic grievances, but there were also fears that the um, they, that people's values and rituals were being undermined. And there was Henry VIII uh, dissolving the um, the monasteries. And in the uh, in the civil wars too of the nineteenth century, I draw a parallel with Brexit there. Yeah, the, that was very most of in in general. Um, the royalists got the strongest support um, in the north and west. The more the the, um, the 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 more rural and conservative areas. Very similar to the pat broad pattern for Brexit. Yeah, whereas maybe. the um, the whereas the um, uh, the parliamentarians at the sport in London, the southeast, and the cities. It's far from perfect. I can point out to plenty of places which were yeah. on one side and one time not another, and the issues are obviously completely different. But it does suggest that the um, um, uh, the economic and cultural divide does have some recurring features, certainly. Which is fascinating. I, I found that really interesting, especially what you say about the conservative nature of the North. Uh, you know, I, I lived in a mining town in, near Rotherham, Maltby, and people generally voted Labour for years, but they had a very conservative, with a small c, attitude to life. Um so that I found that fascinating that that those sort of fractures and divides are, are go way back in history. Yeah, no, no, I I think they and do. The, and you I see, do, and I wonder whether we carry them, even though we're not completely conscious of them. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's what the uh, what the Labour Party, for example, is grappling with now. I mean, exactly. I mean, it's 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 kind of um, internationally minded, liberally minded. Um, growing urban professional graduates yes. membership and it's more traditional conservative working class industrial membership particularly in smaller towns that's the uh, yeah. that's the conundrum it's got to cope with absolutely and also the, the disappearance of its industrial base yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's interesting that the because um, the, the episodes you mentioned are not i don't think that well not generally known amongst the public i think the, I, the feeling that i've always had is that the images that people have of the north is really rooted in early industrialization the kind of shock and amazement that these new kind of cities and factories were being built that you see recorded in 19th century travelers and so on and then the experience of deindustrialization and yet that's such a short period of time obviously it's the closest to us that's probably why we remember it so well but i mean it's really just a short period yet it is the dominant image that we still have of the north even though much of this is gone now yeah, I think so. And that people have kind of fragmentary knowledge of these kind of things. They probably know a bit about the Romans through York or yeah. um or the other places or the or the or Hadrian's Wall or whatever. Uh they may know a bit about the Kingdom of Northumbria, if they know about the Lindisfarne Gospels, if they know about Lindisfarne yeah. and Bamborough yeah. and that sort of stuff. But I think um, people are not taught these, these, this history at all. It's, so a shame it's, as well. it's quite hard to put it together in your mind as some sort of continuous process, which it obviously, obviously it was, and to add together some of those bits of fragmentary knowledge. And historians, until uh, throughout history, of, of they've either uh, dismissed the North as not really relevant up to mm. the Industrial Revolution as just backward and sparsely populated. Or as a positively, as I said, positively savage region where I think Macaulay described the northeast as where people um, people um, dance savage dances and sleep with weapons beside their, yes. their beds just in case <laughs> something goes wrong. <laughs> We're going to be looking at some of these images over the next few programmes. And so, well, thank you very much for for it's coming great. on the on the podcast, Brian. Really, yeah, no, you're welcome. Thank you very much for and your insights. I, I think I think you you offer something just. Just by pointing out that this is only the second history of the North that that is you know that people have heard of, I mean that that just feeds as a Northerner my sense of grievance. Yeah. That, that it's it. So I'm I'm really grateful that you've made an effort to sort of right that wrong and and give us a sense of where we've come from and who we are, um, which I think is really important. If if that Northern culture is going to continue, we have to know who we were to know who we're going to be. So I think, brilliant, thank you. Yeah, well, thank you, you're very kind. So what do you think about that, Adrian? There's a lot to, lot to mull over there, isn't there? Yeah, 
I, I he captures the complexity of the North very well. In in the chapter about he he, he talks about leisure, um, and entertainment in the North. You get this massive sway that from the Beatles to Gracie Fields to George Formby, um, he he he's done a great job, I think of of I agree both both sort of across from from Liverpool to Hull, um, but also down into the history of of the North, where some of these attitudes come from, that feeling of being unrepresented. Um, the barons, the pilgrimage of grace. Um, yeah, he, he really gets that sort of complexity. And I, and I liked that about it. I agree. I found that in the interview and in the book. I mean, and that complexity is something that you really need to pay attention to when you're talking about the North, really, because it's yeah. so easy when you just say the North to conjure up kind of um, established set of assumptions when you're dealing with yeah a lot of difference. At yeah. the same time, you are touching on something that you can well, say is a commonality it's, it's about the North. trying to balance those two things all the time between stereotypes and the fact that these are real people you're talking about. And it's <clears throat> real events in history that have all kinds of resonances. Um, so, you know, that, that that's what historians are for, I suppose. They're, they're trying to present a multifaceted uh, subject in a way that you can get hold of it and realise where things came from but don't fall into just the flat cap and whippet stereotype. Absolutely, and also see how these ideas kind of emerge from lived experience. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, the other thing that the, the book made me think, and also the interview kind of confirmed, was that the North matters. Yes. I mean, it matters to you and me, because yes. we live here. This is where we've made our homes well, and so on. the fact that he, he was speculating that there's only been two serious histories of the North in the last, what, 60, 70 years... I mean, that's just gobsmacking to me and says a lot about the North, that it is underrepresented, even in history, um, and that there's so much to be gained by analysing, looking at, feeling some of these things. Because the North, it's not just... Um, and we've called this episode the true North. For me, it's, 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 it has an emotional punch so many things that have happened here have affected, you know, the Hillsborough disaster, um, Orgreave, um, the miners' strike. And, and I suspect the resonances from the Pilgrimage of Grace had the same effect on the people at the time. They leave this sense of dislocation, of, of injustice. All of those things go to make up the North. You know, and the fact that they still talk about Andy Burnham as mayor of Manchester as the king in the north, and that the Game of Thrones very Game of thing. Thrones that, yeah. <laughs> but it captures that, that that indefinable northernness that I think we're trying to get hold of and represent and give do some justice to. That's what we'll try and do. I mean, the other thing you know that um, I mean, the North matters. It's a subject that constantly comes up again and again yeah. in political conversations. I mean, remember when I was younger, when I was cutting my political teeth, really, <laughs> yeah. in the late 70s, early 80s, this was the period of deindustrialization. Yeah. But I remember hearing long before that, that the North was conceived as a problem region in the 1930s. Yeah, problem. And now, yeah. you know, we've got levelling up, we've got northern well, yeah, powerhouses, exactly. all these conversations. Too. What And what do these things mean in reality, like levelling up? Um I, I I think they're clever phrases because you remember them. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think part of what we're trying to do is say, well, what is the North and what would that mean if you were to level it up? Level it up with what? Um, it, it, it's that, for me, as a poet and a photographer, it's, it's the visual and emotional punch of the North. All those images from years ago of slag heaps and, and people gleaning coal off the top of them, to now the Peak District, things mm -hmm. like that, that, that isn't grim. Um, the, these are what matter. Yeah, and also, you know, when you're asking, when you're, when you're, the things you've talked about, you know, what is the North? What is true North? Mm. These are also questions in the end about what is England? Yes. What is England? Exactly. What is Englishness? You know, why is it so often that Englishness is understood in terms of sort of pastoral southern <laughs> landscapes yeah. rather than the North? You know, and there's also the fact that 
the North was the heartland of the Industrial Revolution, yeah. which changed the world. Yeah. It didn't just change this country, it changed world history, and we're still living with the consequences, for better or worse, of what took place in the 19th century. Yeah, we are. And, and recent history, the minor strike, all those things. So these are some of the things that we will be looking at we will. over the next few episodes. Yeah. Um, so we really hope that you'll drop by and have a listen. Um, next episode, we'll be looking at why... <laughs> how, did, it, how did it get so grim? Why is it grim at North? Is it grim, <laughs> is it North? grim? When did it become so grim? <laughs> yeah. And who said it was? Yeah, exactly. That's what we'll be talking about in the next episode. And 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 we're really keen for people to feel involved with this, um, to find a way of 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 commenting. We'll we'll give you an email address, um, but just to get engaged with with you know, two people grappling with all of this. We'll do our best. Help us to grapple. We'll do our best, and yeah. any help will always be appreciated. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you. If you want to join in with our conversation about the North, you can. Our email address is grimupnorththepodcast at gmail.com. That's grimupnorththepodcast at gmail.com. You are listening to Grim Up North, a podcast about the North from the North.